Hey, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. He is risen. There, there we go. All the church folks. You guys, we have one liturgy once a year in our church. So good job, everybody. You guys look amazing. Everybody dressed up. Like for vineyard standards, this is as swanky as it gets. So well done, friends. This is great. And if you're out there uh, watching us online this morning, we are so glad that you're able to join us. And we trust that you are looking spiffed out as well. Um, today is, uh, in, you know, usually you do sort of a one-off Easter sermon. We're actually kicking off a whole new sermon series this morning. So you are here for the special launch of a new series that we are going to be walking through through the end of July. And we are going to be taking the next few months to examine Jesus' most famous sermon, the one that he gave in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is essentially unpacking what is the truly good life. What is this kingdom-shaped life that he came announcing? And so we hope that you'll stick with us over the next few months as we unpack and unpack his sermon each week. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, during spring break, my family, we packed up and we headed down to the coast for uh, a few days. My wife, she booked us this great little rental place in Pacific City, and as soon as I heard that we were going to be spending spring break, which is in April, at the Oregon coast, I immediately began dreading it. Um, you see, I'm a, I'm a beach guy, but I am not an Oregon coast guy. You know, does anybody relate to me on that? And so from the moment, as we were counting down the weeks leading up to this vacation, I was just sort of bracing myself for what was undoubtedly going to be us trapped in a house full of three little kids with howling wind and rain outside and, for some reason, sandy diapers. Anybody know what that's experienced? And, um, uh, and by God's grace, it was the opposite. Uh, it was, the weather was amazing. Uh, the beach wasn't crowded at all. Everything seemed perfect for our family vacation. So on the first morning that we were there, we packed up all of our kids. Uh, our oldest is five, then a three-year-old, then an 18-month-old, and we walked down to the beach to explore. And it was a little bit chilly, but blue skies, no wind. It was as good as the Oregon coast gets. So my kids... Um, they're, you know, they're eager to play in the sand, and they're generally pretty cautious when it comes to water, especially something as powerful as the ocean. So it took a bit of coaxing to convince them to go down towards where the little ripples of water are to be able to see the waves up close. But I kept assuring them, it's going to be fine. I'm with you. I'll keep you safe. I'm a good dad. You can trust me. And so as we got to the very edge of the tiniest little bit of water, Immediately, like within a minute, suddenly a sneaker wave came at us. And so my oldest, Lewis, he took off running faster than I've ever seen him run before. The kid's an athlete. Um, and I started to retreat, you know, sort of doing the dad trot. Like, oh, this might go a little further than I think it might. And then suddenly I realized this is going to sweep up over our blankets and our sand toys and our, our backpacks and everything. And so 
then I look over and I see my wife, who is holding our 16-month-old daughter and is holding the hand of our three-year-old son, and she's looking at me with these eyes that are begging for mercy as the water is rushing up more than knee-deep on her, which means more than chest-deep on our three-year-old, and he is swept off his feet, holding on as icy cold water is rushing over him. My baby daughter is starting to cry, and Carly is screaming at me, help me! And then I look over and I see that our stuff might get wet. And so in a moment of decision, <laughs> I ran to our stuff. And I, and I grabbed everything and I saved it from getting all soaking wet. God forbid we lose one of those plastic shovels. And then I turned to my wife with a look of triumph on my face to say, like, look, see, I saved everything. It's going to be okay. And she looked back at me with eyes that could only be described as what you would look at Judas like. <laughs> the rooster crowed, and I had denied her. <laughs> and so this beautiful and perfect beginning to our vacation had suddenly taken a very nasty turn, where there was at one moment joy and hope and trust and excitement for a vacation together. There was now fear and confusion and freezing cold, icy, you know, cold clothes and soaked shoes and trust had been broken. Marshall, Marshall, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> and so we worked it out, Carly and I. But later that day, her response was, you one day have to give this story as a sermon illustration to point out what is the opposite of what our good father is like. <laughs> and so here we are. <laughs> here we are. It's Easter 2022. And I think that for many of us, we are emerging from a season of our lives that has left us feeling much the same way. Two years ago, I was full of more hope than I've ever felt, more vision for the church, for my life, for my family than I'd ever felt. Um, and that was in February of 2020, and then everything in the world just felt like it was suddenly crashed down upon us. And during this troubling stretch of lockdown and fear, we were offered this sort of consolation of hope, a speculation that, that uh, all of this Calamity would be over by Easter 2020, and we would all celebrate together in six short weeks. Well, how did that go for us? Not so great. And so during that stretch, many of our expectations and hopes were crushed, and our plans were decimated. For some, there was lost jobs or having to pivot in your work, or if you're a business owner, having to scramble to figure out how to keep this thing alive for some of us, we lost friends or family members to a previously unheard of disease. Relationships were strained over the last two years due to lockdown and isolation, due to uh, issues around racial injustice, and of course, a political election that was like far from peaceful. On and on we can go. The wave snuck up on us, and some version of our truest selves was suddenly exposed. And in the Bible, throughout the history of Scripture, God's people faced these similar waves from time to time. 
They were rescued out of Egypt with hope that they were going into a promised land only to be met with 40 years of wandering in a desert. And then when those 40 years were up, the hope, the prophecies were going out. Everything is going to be great. We're going to enter into a new land for you. And they were met immediately with formidable enemies. Fast forward a little while later, the people of God who were hoping for a king that could rule them well like the other nations, were, their, their hopes were crushed with the experience of kings who actually reflected their same brokenness. Fast forward, the people of God are in exile in a foreign land, wondering when God will restore them. And finally, it's time for them to come home and to rebuild their temple, rebuild their city, rebuild their whole way of life, only to be met with 400 years where not a prophet spoke, where it was silent and God seemed distant. And during that time, only to be reconquered by another foreign power called Rome. Just when you thought it was about to get good, it gets dark. Just as they begin to hope for salvation, the kingdom of God, another wave of despair sneaks up on them. And so then, after 400 years of silence, rumors of a carpenter's son, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, they begin to spread through the villages that are surrounding Jerusalem. Like, could it be? Could there be something hopeful on the other side? Are things about to change? Who is this man? He went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Had another prophet finally come? It's weird. This guy seems to preach like he has some kind of authority from heaven and hope starts to rise. And even those who were considered outsiders at one time are now being welcomed in to God's kingdom by this rabbi and prophet. He's talking about a kingdom, the rule of God spreading all over the earth, this thing that we had hoped for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he's talking about it in a way that is totally different than the way that the rest of the the teachers of the day are talking about it. And we see that the sick are being healed and the hungry are being fed, that children are dancing in the street and palm branches are being waved and laid at his feet as they are welcoming in their messianic king. Good news had finally come. In Matthew chapter four, we read a summary of what this good news, this message that Jesus came preaching. In verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the central message that Jesus preached is found right there in Matthew chapter four, verse 17. What is the gospel? The good news that Jesus came speaking was repent because God's kingdom has now drawn near. The good news is a kingdom? Like what a strange image, what weird language. Uh, Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard writes, writes about it like this. He says that the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. And so that everything that Jesus says and does in these Gospels serves to explain and reveal the true, the real, the good, and the beautiful life that God intends for all of us. The the life that God invites each one of us to begin experiencing here and now. Not just someday in heaven, but right here on earth. Life in the kingdom of God. Now, In the West, particularly in the American West, we articulate our spiritual hunger from generation to generation through four basic spiritual questions. And these questions sort of rotate with each generation. Uh, So in this room, we have four generations that are represented at least. 
Um, and with each of these generations, there is a sort of a different question that is being asked of the gospel. You've got to forgive me my generalities if this doesn't apply to you, but it's mostly true. For the boomer generation, the fundamental question is, what is true? What is truth? Is truth knowable? Is the gospel verifiable? And so then in your generation, you had scholars like Francis Schaeffer who did amazing work on this question. You have a rise of something called apologetics, which is like making the case for Christ. But then the next generation comes along, along Gen X, and they're like, you know, truth is great. I appreciate truth. There's something valuable there. But really the question is, what is real? Because you can have truth, but it's pointless if it doesn't correspond with our real-life felt experience. For millennials, my people, any millennials out there? We, we're going to rule the world. Um, for millennials, the question is, what is good? What is goodness? Because a lot of things that are true or real also are terrible. And so, so what is goodness and how do we fight for it? Millennials have an activist bent wanting to be, quote, on the right side of history, on the right side of every issue. And then we get on to Gen Z, our, our youngest generation, which admittedly uh, we are only at the very beginning of right now. But the question seems to be for them, what is beautiful? How do I live a life that is not only based in truth or reality or goodness, how do I live a life that is compelling, that is worth, worth my time? And this question is so disarming, it cuts through all of the other questions. See, truth, reality, goodness, and beauty, these are things that are meant to point us to something that is beyond us. When we try to look inward to find these four questions fulfilled, we will always end up coming up short. And we all carry within us hints of these things because we are made in the image of God. But absolute truth and ultimate reality and uncorrupted goodness and ever-increasing beauty is only found in God himself. And so the life that Jesus is depicting in the Sermon on the Mount, the life that Jesus is demonstrating for us, this kingdom-shaped life, it seeks to answer these four questions. And it locates all four questions in the person of Jesus himself. The life that is true and real and good and beautiful is one that we see in the Gospels. It is one that appears upside down compared with the rest of the expectations and values of our world. It's what the Bible calls shalom. It's a life of true rest and flourishing. Again, Dallas Willard writes, Jesus offers himself as God's doorway into the life that is truly life. Confidence in him leads us today, as in other times, to become his apprentices in eternal living. Those who come through me will be safe, he said. They will go in and out and find all that they need. I have come into their world that they may have life and life to the limit. So to be a Christian is not merely to adhere to a certain set of beliefs. It's not to have been uh, properly dunked in some water. It's not to have prayed a specific prayer. No, to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, is to become his apprentice in eternal living. Isn't that a great phrase? We are all learning how to live in his kingdom under the rule and the blessing of God. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we see that he comes teaching about this kingdom and he comes demonstrating what this kingdom is like. Again, Matthew chapter 4. 
And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And so as Jesus heals the sick, those who are in pain or those who are suffering under the oppression of the demonic or those who suffer from mental illness or if they have diseases, this is a demonstration of the authority of the king undoing all the problems that evil have caused that, that, that plague us in our world. When Jesus came extending forgiveness to sinners for, the sin, for their sin, so, uh, he did so as the king, restoring right relationship with all those who live in rebellion and bringing them back into restored relationship with the Father. Demonstrating the kingdom of God looks like undoing the effects of sin and evil. Demonstrating the kingdom is miraculous because it releases God's power to bring healing to those who are in pain and sickness, who are in emotional and spiritual and physical pain. But it doesn't stop there. You see, demonstrating the kingdom also, uh, is also in every ordinary moment of our lives when we show the world around us what a life of flourishing is meant to be. What does the kingdom look like? It looks like my good friends, Jake and Ellie Carlson, opening their home to foster kids and welcoming them into a place of safety and peace, shalom. What does it look like? It looks like my really good friends, the Petrells, inhabiting their neighborhood, being a gospel kingdom presence where they are, knowing all of their neighbors by name, and not only knowing their names, knowing their, their, their needs and sacrificially meeting them. It looks like my friends, the Thorsviks, who opened their lives to refugees from other parts of the world, even opening their homes and welcoming in people who don't even share their language so that they can experience a, a place of belonging and welcome. Jesus went around the kingdom, went around teaching about the kingdom of God everywhere that he went. And these three chapters that we are going to spend the next few months examining are a long-form synopsis of what this kingdom is all about. And everything that Jesus is about to say to us about his kingdom is going to be totally counterintuitive to us. It's going to feel in many ways like it is upside down. From the outset of his sermon, Jesus is about to answer the big question, what kind of life is true, is real, is good, and is beautiful? Essentially, who is truly hashtag blessed? In verse 2 of chapter 5, we read, And Jesus opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, uh, this list is commonly called the Beatitudes. It's, a description, it's a, one of the most poetic things we read, I think, in the Bible and even beyond the Bible, Jesus welcoming in all of the least of these. And Jesus begins his sermon by making a list of people who he calls blessed. 
Now, it's really important that we get an understanding of what this word blessed means, or blessed, if you're more old school. It's the Greek word markarios. Can you say markarios? And this is actually a very difficult word for us to translate into English. We don't have a direct equivalent in our language. The word makarios, makarios doesn't refer to sort of invoking a blessing over someone, like bless you, makarios, like bless you. No, there are other words in Hebrew and Greek for that. In some of our Bibles, you might be translated like the word happy, but that might be an unhelpful translation because of the way that Americans don't really understand what happiness really is. Um, other translations might use the word fortunate. Some scholars actually like to say that the best translation of this word makarios is actually a salutation, like, way to go, you know, good for you, congratulations. It's a word you would say to someone when something good in their life happens, like if they have a baby or they get married. You know, when you see that person, you might say, congratulations, makarios. And so Jesus begins his sermon with a list of congratulations. And consider who it is that Jesus is congratulating. This is a list that in our day we would not say, or we would not expect Jesus to pronounce as blessed. And that is exactly why the words of Jesus are so confusing and even troubling for us. The list of blessings in Matthew chapter 5 are not a set of virtues to attain to. The question that Jesus is answering is not, what must I do to be congratulated, but rather, who is really blessed? When I was a teenager, I remember going on this road trip down to Mexico for a mission trip with a bunch of my friends, and um, we ended up at this gas station, and a homeless guy came up to me and began sharing the gospel with me. And I listened for a little bit, and I was like, oh, man, thank you so much for sharing the gospel, but hey, I'm already a Christian. We're actually on our way right now to go uh, do a mission trip, so uh, bless you, brother. Like, we'll be on our way. And then he goes on to confront me about the fact that I am not really a true Christian, because if I was a true true Christian, I would be poor and homeless just like he is. And then he quoted this set of verses to me. And then we went to a severely impoverished Mexican village for a week and served people who lived in ways that I had never seen or experienced before. And the question rattled in my mind that whole week, is that what Jesus is saying here? That only the truly poor will receive the kingdom? And then we think, well, no, 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 certainly not. So we spiritualize it. And we say that the first, you know, we remember that the first beatitude says poor in spirit. And so it's really more about your heart, about, you know, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you need to have a sense of your own neediness before God. But is that what Jesus is saying here? That we have to learn how to live a life of mourning and meek, being meek, or we, we are not truly in the kingdom until we experience persecution? It is such an overachieving American thing for us to turn this list into things that we need to achieve and do in order to be saved. Lumping this into a set of virtues completely misses what Jesus is really saying. Again, Dallas Willard, in case you haven't noticed, I've been reading him a lot lately, but let's read him. The Beatitudes in particular are not teachings about how to be blessed. They are not instructions to do anything. They do not indicate conditions that are especially pleasing to God or good for human beings. No one is actually being told that they are better off for being poor or for mourning or for being persecuted and so on, or that the conditions listed are recommended ways to well-being before God or man. Nor are the Beatitudes indications of who will be on top after the revolution. They are explanations and illustrations drawn from the immediate setting of the present availability of the kingdom through personal relationship to Jesus. 
they single out cases that provide proof that in him, in Jesus, the rule of God from the heavens truly is available in life circumstances that are beyond any human hope. What are these Beatitudes communicating to us? They are saying that no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, and no matter how you feel, the kingdom of God is available to you, even you. Are you poor? Congratulations. You are welcome in God's kingdom. Are you mourning? Great news. God's comfort is offered to you in your suffering. Are you meek and lowly? God is inviting you to live and rule with him. Are you unemployed? God isn't done with you. Are you single? Blessed are you. God's kingdom is going to be extended through people like you. This is truly good news for all of us. No matter how you've come in here this morning, you are welcome in God's kingdom. And Jesus was more than a mere messenger of this kingdom of God. In the book, Jesus, the man who lives, Malcolm Muggridge writes, Jesus' good news then was that the kingdom of God had come and that he, Jesus, was its herald and expounder to men. But more than that, in some special, mysterious way, he was the kingdom. Jesus didn't just teach us what the kingdom of God is like. Jesus was the very incarnation of what, of what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus is the king come to lead us into a whole new way of life. And so Jesus came proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. He came to show and to tell. And Jesus went about showing and telling the kingdom of God is near to everyone. And even until his very last moment before his death on the cross, Jesus continues extending invitation and blessing, which brings us back to the cross. You see, for the followers of Jesus in that day, during that week, another wave of despair had finally hit. After welcoming him as their king of this messianic kingdom on Sunday, six days later, their would-be savior hung on a cross, struggling to breathe every breath, and yet still demonstrating, still living what this kingdom of God looks like, even in his greatest suffering. When you think about these beatitudes, consider Jesus. Blessed are the meek, He's about to inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful. He is receiving mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. That is what a son of God looks like. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist the evil person. And when they strike you on their right cheek, turn to them your other one as well. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who are nailing you to a cross that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. See, from the cross, Jesus continues to proclaim and demonstrate the words that we read in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which gives us hope that this is something that is available to all of us. And as the wave is crashing over his followers, what hope could they hold on to? Was this all for nothing? Was it all a sham? In the face of the, of the cross, could the kingdom be really true? 
Could this way of life be real? Is there any hope for true and ultimate goodness? Can we find beauty in a world that is so marred and ugly as to crucify the author of life? And on that Friday and Saturday, the answer was an emphatic no. But then comes Sunday. When Sunday morning arrives, so does this ultimate hope in the kingdom that Jesus had been talking about. So does the vindication of every word that he spoke. It is true. The empty tomb shows us that this blessed life, this kingdom-shaped life is true and trustworthy. It's real and it is upon us. It is good and shows us what true goodness is. It is beautiful and promises us a future of ever-increasing beauty. And best of all, it is at hand. It is available to everyone. So congratulations, Makarios. Blessed are you. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Stay with us on this journey as we explore what that kingdom looks like over the next few months. Amen?